you said mental health affects physical. Well, physical also can lead to mental health issues. If you have a if you have cancer, you're twice as likely to develop yeah. anxiety, depression. So this was really the biggest challenge. And I, I was in a, in a, working for a company and a leadership that uh, thought there was a, an opportunity for us to do something big on it. So I spent the last six years in the company um, working on uh, bringing the global community together around mental health, kind of the way we tried to do on HIV. And one of the one of the biggest challenges till today is that the mental health community is very fragmented. There's just not enough funding. Yeah. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, the, the quality of services and the coverage is so is is um, is fairly low, and so you know there's not a lot for people to galvanize around. Um, but we spent the last six years trying to bring people together and, and put our heads together for a better outcome, and I, I think we're making some progress. Yeah. Welcome to episode 76 of People Are the Answer. I truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm Jeffrey M. Zucker, a serial entrepreneur, here to learn how innovators are creating outsized transformational social impact and to shine a light on all the good happening in a world often hyper-focused on the negative. Today's episode features Craig Kramer, a mental health ambassador who spent nearly 25 years at Johnson & Johnson, helping them utilize their resources to create impact around the world. He helped create their global campaign for mental health, in which he represented J&J with major governments, international organizations, NGOs, private sectors, civil society, and other stakeholders in leading a global initiative to help transform mental health care worldwide. Craig and I discuss his brief political career and time in Korea, are playing hockey together, his world travels while helping to create impact in healthcare, his deep dive in mental health and how it was personal for his family, and much more. Here is Craig Kramer on People Are the Answer. So we are coming to you live from the Podcast Movement Conference here in Denver, Colorado, my hometown. Uh, I've got my buddy Craig Kramer here. And Craig, thank you so much for joining me on People Are the Answer. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. It's uh, it's great to have you, and uh, you know we're we're hockey buddies. We skate together at my Friday morning skates, and uh, let's just briefly talk about how hockey kind of brings people together. Sure, that'd be great. Um, so I, I just moved to Denver two and a half years ago, and I was uh, looking for a group to play with. I, I don't want to play in leagues anymore because people are too competitive, yeah. and I, I just want to get home and go to bed without injuries. And um, Bumped into you at the rink one day um, and saw you had something good going on and uh, you were kind enough to invite me out. And it, it is a great group of people, men and women, all ages, all talent. And um, we get to play in the Magnus Arena of the former national champion Denver uh, men's hockey team. Yep. And it's just uh, the greatest thing because you, you feel, even though this, the seats are empty, you feel like, you're, what is it, a 1500s? I think it's honestly. I think it seats like over four thousand people. Oh, you just feel like you're living the dream. Yeah, no, it is, especially <laughs> since they finally redid the boards this year. But, uh, but yeah, it's just hockey really brings people together. I, I talked about it on my episode with Martin Richardson from Dog Nation, and it's just yeah. it's a great way to bring people together. And we're going to get talking here about mental health and hockey. For me, is a great release for for my mental health and kind of keeps me sane. So I, I love getting to play a couple times a week at least. Well, and the fact that you have us playing on Friday, you know, no, no matter how bad the week is, you get to end it on a high note. Oh, exactly. I, everyone there loves starting our weekend like that. It's awesome. 
And uh, so let's start off by, by asking you a couple things. So, you know, we told, said your name's Craig Kramer. You're based here in Denver. What is your current role? Well, I, I retired from uh, Johnson & Johnson, the global healthcare company, at the end of last year. And I'm continuing my work in mental health by uh, being on about nine, nine boards right now, chairing an effort in Washington, D.C. to reform mental health in the United States. Uh, I'm in, in Denver, I'm on the board of the Mental Health Center of Denver. So I, I'm, my, my mission, uh, I think, for the duration of my life and career is going to be trying to reform and fix mental health care in the U.S. and around the world. Yeah, I love that. And uh, that sort of speaks to this. But in life in general, what would you say motivates you? Well, I, I, you know, like probably most people, I, w I want to make a difference, and um, I've, I've been privileged to have a great education and work in some of the leading organizations in the world, and so I've, I've seen what impact you can have, um, and I've, I want to keep leveraging that and try to make a difference. I mean, yeah. we're just one person, but you, you know, for, for me, it's how do you bring the right people together to make a bigger impact. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I love that. It feels good to help people and make people's lives better, and uh where did you grow up, and what was it like there? Well, I grew up in the only place in the United States where you can look south across the river and see Canada. A place oh, called Port Huron. It's on the it's yeah. on the south side of the thumb of Michigan, and um, that you know, in retrospect, that taught me two things. One is that the conventional wisdom is not always exactly correct. Right. Sometimes you know, Canada is to the south, um, and the other thing was that I you know spent a lot of time going across that border, so. Unlike most Americans, I, I had this exposure to that there were other people in the world and that you could uh, understand yourself better by engaging those people. And if, if, if there's a through line in my career, it's this idea of uh, there's a globe that's important to our well-being and also um, that you have to look beyond the conventional wisdom and try to see the patterns and the, you know, what's over the horizon. Yeah. And what was it like growing up in Port Huron? Well, hockey was, uh, that's where I learned how to play hockey yeah. around the age of five. And um, um, my, you know, coming from Michigan, it's a, it's a big auto state. It's a big union state. Um, my dad was, it was from a Catholic family. My mother was from a Lutheran family. That was another big influence, I think. You know, I, um, you know Martin Luther, everybody knows, tacked those 95 theses on the door of the cathedral. And that led to the creation of Lutheranism and other Protestant faiths, um, but the Catholics and the, and, and the Lutherans didn't really get along, and there was in fact a lot of fighting and and, uh, and worse. Um, so when my parents got married 500 years later, uh, they were bringing together two cultures that e even today there's not hostility, but there's a healthy disrespect and, <laughs> and skepticism. Yeah, and our families always loved each other, uh, and yet we understood there were different cultures. Um, in our in our communities that had important values and um, and you know to this day we have important conversations. Yeah, no, that's that's really cool to hear. And um, can you think of any experiences growing up that really showed you the importance of giving back and maybe led you in that direction eventually? Well, there's there's certainly a lot. My parents were always involved in uh, ch charity and politics, um, but one of the threads was that you know again my mother joined the Catholic Church. That was kind of uh, frowned upon in the Lutheran community, mm -hmm. and they got married in 1957. While well, 1960, the country elected its first Catholic president, mm -hmm. and up to that point, Catholics were uh, viewed as sort of second-class citizens because the, the the thought was that they 
only listened to the Pope. They weren't really, you know, committed to America. And so that was a transformational moment for my mother, and for, I think for all Catholics, but particularly for her, to almost validate, I think, that she had uh, done something that was maybe important. And um, so I, I remember my, my mother crying twice. My mother raised five boys, but I remember two times, and I'm sure there were others, but there were two times that I remember her crying. One was the day Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. So at that point, I was seven or eight years old, so I was old enough to be a little bit aware of the world and what was going on. And, to see your mother crying, who's, who's was a very tough, you know, mm. uh, person. The second time was when I, I got a scholarship to go to a place called Choate, mm -hmm. which is the very prep school where JFK went to school. Oh wow! And this was, you know, this is where all the rich and famous and and the aristocracy sends their kids. I think they're known for hockey too, right? Well, we, uh, <laughs> I'll come back to that in a minute. So I got I got the hockey scholarship to go there. And um, when my mother opened the letter saying that I was going to go to the same place as JFK, she just cried then. Yeah, we, um, we, uh, our, my junior year, I was the goalie on the team. Um, I didn't realize which, which you were originally. Know, yeah. I, I can't do that acrobatics anymore, so you, you only see me slowly skating up and down the ice. But um, my junior year, we, we had a perfect record, 17-0. Wow. We were nationally ranked, obviously. There was no high school playoff back then. Um, and uh, so that, that was probably the pinnacle of my hockey career. That's awesome, though. Yeah, yeah no, that, that sounds like a lot of fun. My pinnacle was also in high school, but it was not on that level. <laughs> uh, and so you, so you went to, to Choate, and then I know you went to Princeton. What, how did you so, end up there? Well, so I, you know, I, I, I did well academically at Choate. I, I actually was elected student body president, if you can imagine this. <laughs> I mean, it was the farthest thing from my mind, but I threw my hat in the ring, and you, know, you, you never know what's going to happen. Um, and I was looking to play hockey in, in Division One, and so I, Princeton um, recruited me. And, and I, the, the year before, they had two senior goaltenders, so I thought I'd walk in there and play for four years. Well, they recruited five goalies that year. Wow. And um, one of them was much better than the rest of us. Hmm. He played every game for four years. Wow. And he was uh, the team MVP for three of those four <laughs> years. And you know the goalie's never the MVP. Right. But he was three, he was so good, and so after my freshman year, I I saw the writing on the wall, and and I I, I gave up hockey as a career at that point. I mean, it's even just as a college player, such a huge time commitment, especially yeah. if, to not play. So I can't blame you for that. Yep, sitting sitting around waiting for Ron Dennis to get hurt, uh, but it didn't <laughs> seem like a. a you know, valuable problems. Yeah. And he never did, by the way. He was fantastic. <laughs> Good guy. And how, so once you did that, how was the rest of your experience at Princeton? I, this is where I think I really got into uh, giving back. So I, I started joining and running different uh, student organizations that raise, that either raise money or did, did work on behalf mm -hmm. of uh, underprivileged organiz, uh, populations. Um, and I, I, fo I ended up pivoting from medicine to public policy. Um, so my, my degree eventually was in, um, public and international affairs and that you know again going back to this idea of international and global and uh, also kind of trying to think about bigger picture uh, perspectives on things rather than just accepting the conventional yeah. wisdom yeah no it's, it's cool to hear how that transition sort of started and from there you went to law school at michigan yes um i w thought i'd go back home to michigan and, and start some kind of a political or legal career um and um had a great three years at the University of Michigan Law School, and then decided to go to Washington, try to try to go to the big leagues. Um, and I practiced law at a 
big Democratic firm for uh, five years. Then I went to the Hill for five years working for uh, the Levin brothers, Carl and Sandy, from, who were from Michigan. Um, and then uh, uh, when the Democrats lost the majority in the House, where I was working primarily, um, it got very boring because when you're in the minority in, in the House of Representatives, you have no power. Right. Your job is basically to strategically complain and get on the <laughs> evening news or the, you know, we didn't have social media back then, but um, so eventually I got a call from a headhunter and his company, Johnson & Johnson, was looking for somebody who had global policy yeah. experience, and that's where I spent the last 24 years. Wow. In part of that, that time uh, initially in your career, you did some time in Korea? Yeah, that's right. Uh, right after law school, I, uh, uh, then girlfriend, future wife, and I um, went to work for a human rights organization. Um, and we did that for one year. Korea was, my, my wife, uh, my ex-wife, first wife, was uh, born in Korea. Korea had, had a military dictatorship for about 30 years, I think. And they were having their first democratic election. So the, our human rights organization went in to uh, monitor the election, just to sort of inspect basic fairness, but also work on issues like political prisoners, what was going to happen to them in this transition, um, freedom of speech and other kind yeah. of human rights issues. Um, it was a fantastic time for two people who were fresh out of law school. Yeah. I mean, we, we landed in Seoul, and that first night we were sitting next to the U.S. ambassador at the uh, inaugural party launch for a guy named Kim Dae-jung, who had just been released from prison. So he was, he was one of the opposition candidates. Later became a, a Nobel Prize winner for his efforts to bring peace and, and uh, freedom to Korea. So just a ridiculous place to be when you really don't know anything. Yeah. You're just out of, you, you've just closed your books for the last time and suddenly you're on the world stage. Yeah, you're like a front row to this pivotal point in history. Yeah, yeah it was an amazing time. And, um, Maybe Did you realize it at the time, like, that it was a big deal, or was it just, like, that's life, like, where you were? No, I mean, you know, the transition from military to, to, to democracy doesn't happen that often. Right. Um, and to our, because very few human rights groups came to Korea, we were, we were kind of the only ones that the, the media could talk to who wasn't on one side or the other. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, the, uh, the Clyde Haverman of the New York Times, Fred Hyatt from the Washington Post, you know, we were, we were just uh, constantly in touch with them, and, and they were covering this world event. Um, I'll just give you one thing that happened that was yeah. just... So for many Koreans, whether they were 80 years old or 20 years old, this was their first time to, to vote. Yeah. Um, and people lined up for miles and with just tears in their eyes to have this opportunity wow. to vote. A week before the election, uh, the North Koreans blew up a commercial airline that was coming back to Korea and killed that, you know, it was over 100 people on board. And so on the day of the election, um, there was a a healthy fear that the North Koreans might launch some kind of a missile attack. or So when you were out there voting, you were not voting just against the military dictators, but you were putting your own life in your hands. Mm -hmm. And um, when I came back to America, I just I realized how much we take democracy for granted. Yeah. When you saw people who were willing to give everything to just cast their ballot. I mean, that rings so true today in our divisive world where, you know, so many Americans are just so divided and hateful and you know don't appreciate what we have here you know we do we live in a as messed up as it is i think we live in a great country that offers us great opportunities we've been able to get here where we are and so a perspective like that going to see something like that you know really kind of frames it for you 
Yeah, I, I, one, of, one of the downsides of our current environment is that um, there's a growing, uh, you know, we're, we're focusing more on ourselves now. You know, what's America first? How do we be, take care of our own group, our own country, which is, which is very, very important. At the same time, America is the world's leader, and we are, you know, yeah. we don't have to be the world's policeman, but yeah. whatever we don't uh, focus on ends up coming back to haunt us. I mean, look yeah. what's happening now in, in Ukraine. Um, and so that, you know, we are the only country, that, the only superpower that can go out and do those things. And my experience has been global. So I've, I've talked to people in, you know, over 50 countries and I've hired people and worked with people. And, um, and, and so I have a sensibility about why it's important to work together. And I see that slipping away on both sides of the aisle now that there's this focus on fighting each other instead of joining together to, to you know, make progress globally on important issues that affect us directly, yeah. maybe even more than some of the things we talk about here. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's that sounds like a, a really cool experience. You clearly were uh, driven by impact early on, and uh, then you joined uh, the government affairs uh, portion of J Johnson & Johnson um, before eventually becoming the ambassador and chair of the Global Campaign on Mental Health. So just kind of give me a summary of your time, your 24 years of Johnson & Johnson, then we can dig in on some specifics. Yeah, well, j, j is and was a global company. You know, half of our sales were outside the U.S. at the time. But we, we only had a handful of government affairs people in the U.S. because the company had, had this long belief that if they just uh, stuck to their knitting that they, they would be successful. Um, that was starting to change because governments were regulating healthcare more and more all around the world. Um, but we didn't really have anybody outside the U.S. when I was this international guy. So I spent the first 18 years of my career traveling the world, setting up outposts of empire for this, you know, the head, I worked at a headquarters in New Jersey. And um, I, I think I started in Japan and I worked my way west to China, Korea, Australia, India, Singapore, um, Europe. And then I, the, my last hire was all the way down in the south of Latin America and Argentina. You know, we did Canada, Mexico, so forth and so on. Um, and it was just a wonderful time to get to see the world. I mean, yeah. it's right, you know, a little guy from a little town in Michigan <laughs> gets to go out and, um, you know, I was meeting with prime ministers, health ministers, um, presidents, uh, doctors, uh, country doctors, patients in, in rural villages, in big cities. It was really just a phenomenal learning experience. And we were all collectively making a difference in providing people with basic health care and basic health services. Yeah. So what were your feelings at the time or now on Johnson & Johnson as a whole? It seems like they must have cared about their effect on the world and their global politics. You know, when you go, I, I later went to business school because the, the company figured out I didn't really know what I was doing <laughs> on the business side. So I, um, and when I, and I went to business school and uh, all the professors wanted to talk to me because Johnson & Johnson uh, is, is, is sort of the iconic company, American yeah. company in the business world. And it, it, what it boils down to is the company has a mission statement. It's called the Credo. It's that is uh, that we all abide by and we get compensated for following. It's 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 not just on the wall. It's part of the DNA. And the, and the, yeah. the Credo basically says our first priority is not is not the shareholders. It's it's the in our case the patients, but the customers. Mm. Second priority is not the shareholders. It's the employees. And the third mm. priority is not the shareholders. It's the community. Wow. So J and J is always at the forefront of, of you know environmental. Uh, policies. We're at the fourth. We, we pay our fair share of taxes, which a lot of companies don't do. 
um, you know, work-life balance for our employees. It was something we've been doing for 30, 40 years. And it turns out that if you, if you treat your customers as number one, your employees as number two, and your community as number three, you make a lot of money. And, and yeah. J&J is the most successful company over the last 100 years. Wow. It's, it sounds like the impact and the importance of everyone was just really baked into the culture there. Yeah, and so when, when something happens, whether it's a natural disaster or if, if I'm in the middle of China talking to a leader, um, I know that my North Star is what's the right thing to do for patients. And then our company will figure out how to, how to make money off of that. For many companies, it's, well, I've got a widget to sell. Mm. You know, that's my priority. Right. Um, so when, um, when I was in business school, actually the, the, the Communist Party of China sent a small delegation to come find me because they knew I worked for J&J and they knew that I was the head China guide for policy. And they were trying to revamp their healthcare system. Hmm. Uh, and they wanted to work with Johnson & Johnson because they knew that we would give them the straight uh, information about what works and what doesn't. We wouldn't be promoting any particular products. Um, and so we ended up being the tip of the spear from the private sector or the non-governmental sector um, and brought a coalition of people together to work with the party and the government to create China's healthcare system, and it's, um, you know, they, they've come a long way. Every person in China has an electronic medical record, yeah. which is good for healthcare. There, there's also a, a dark side to that when you live in a state yeah. that's collecting data on everybody. But everybody has a basic set of health benefits right now, as I understand it, um, and they're able to build on that base. Um, and China also wanted to be part of the innovation sector. They didn't just want to be the, the low-cost purchaser. They wanted to be investing yeah. in biotech and that sort of thing. And you see that now in their leadership in that space um, and really competition, healthy competition yeah. in the healthcare space. Do you have a point of view on the current sort of tension between the U.S. and China? And even on the research side, like they've generally been so sharing in terms of scientific research, but there's starting to be debate around that and whether or not that's going to continue. Well, I, I'm going to dance around this question because there's no, there's no simple answer that's going to not get you and me in trouble here. But <laughs> China is a, is a large uh, country. Most of its population is not rich. They've uh, done more to raise, I think they raised 300 million people out of poverty in the last decade. Um, so they've done more than any country in the world to, to raise the overall standard of living. It's still a challenge for them. I mean, they have to make sure people are employed. Unemployment's quite high right now. they got a big bubble in real estate. So the, the command and control of, of communist economics is arguably undermining their progress. At the same time, they're, they're, almost, they're going to be the largest economy in the world. Yeah. They're, they're exercising their strength on the, in the military side and the ocean. So it's a very complicated situation. I, 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 th I think there's no simple answer. You can't just cut ties with China and try yeah. to isolate them. But you also can't just sit back and, and watch the current trajectory continue because it, it needs to be a, a partnership. And they need to hear from us that there's some course correction that would be helpful to the world and to them, per perhaps. So I, I, um, the people who are working on this around the world in all governments and private sector in China, outside of China, got a lot of work to do because yeah. it's, it's too important for us not to try to get it right. Yeah. Well, let's, let's move on a little bit. Tell me about your transition into the ambassador and chair of the Global Campaign on Mental Health uh, with J&J. Yeah, so I, I was working on... Uh, all the healthcare challenges that the world faces. I work on cancer. I did a lot of work on HIV, which you, you and I are old enough to remember that this was the death sentence 20 years ago. Yeah. 
and there were millions of people, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, dying. Um, uh, I worked on uh, diabetes and obesity, which is a global phenomenon, infant and uh, maternal mortality and health issues, and how do you get our youngest people around the world to get a healthy start, uh, which is, again, a big challenge in many developing yeah. countries. Um, and then um, in, in 2013, I, my family had a couple of mental health crises. We lost one family member to dr drug overdose, opiates. This is before we knew we had an opiate crisis right. in the United States. And almost lost another to suicide. Um, and so I um, started, when I was going making my rounds, I started asking health ministers and others about mental health in their country. Uh, and I found that it was, it was broken everywhere. Um, the World Health Organization later said that when it comes to mental health, every country is a developing country. Mm, yeah. Our own experience as a family was that it's very hard to get quality, effective mental health care yeah. uh, and affordable. A lot of times yeah. insurance didn't cover it, so you had to fight with them. It took three to six months to get an appointment. Yeah. Uh, people, the, the providers were not necessarily following evidence-based practices. They all had their own kind of bespoke uh, approach. And so you spent literally, you know, the, the statistics says it takes eight to 10 years for people to find quality care that stabilizes wow, them that's in the United States, which is unacceptable. Yeah. So it was the same everywhere. And so I, we have actually, Johnson Johnson has one of the leading neuroscience um, pharmaceutical divisions. So they do a lot of work on depression and schizophrenia and um, so I, I went to that group and also to our CEO, and, and we formulated this idea that we could do the same thing for mental health that we had just done for HIV. We'd helped do for HIV. And we, you know, we worked with lots of partners to reduce the stigma on HIV, improve the science and the treatments that were available, and then get the system to deliver that care to people all over the world. So on HIV today, it's not a death sentence anymore. It's a chronic illness. And there are actually people now looking at vaccines that would make it totally preventable. That's in a 20-year span. Wow. So we thought, you know, how hard could it be to do the same thing for mental health? End the stigma, uh, get more investment in science, and fix the system. And we, I, I at least greatly underestimated the, yeah. the, the difference in how difficult this was going to be. Yeah, I mean, in terms of mental health, I mean, like you said, every country is a developing country. I thought that was really an astute point. And, I mean, yeah, growing up, for me, it wasn't really part of the conversation. I mean, I grew up in, in the South, in South Carolina. Um, and, like, looking back, I, I wish that it had been more in the conversation. I wish we had a better understanding. I think there's a lack of general understanding in our country how important mental health actually is to your physical health. And so I think the closer we get to understanding that and just, you know, I think we are opening up some in terms of being able to talk about mental health and starting to alleviate some of the stigmas, but there's still a lot of work to do. Yeah, and I, I thought my family was uniquely unlucky. Um, and what I found out was that mental health is really the biggest challenge in healthcare. It's, it's bigger than the combination of cancer, diabetes, and, yeah. and respiratory illnesses like asthma and COPD. Yeah. It's the leading cause of disability worldwide. So this is when I, I, you know, I started really focusing on it because I, I'd been working on what I thought were the leading healthcare issues, but mental health eclipsed all of them. And the opportunity for, to, to improve the, was so huge. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, you just look at suicide rates and, and deaths of despair from drugs and alcohol. All these things are downstream effects of it. And um, you, know, you said mental health affects physical. Well, physical also can lead to mental health issues. If you have a 
if you have cancer, you're twice as likely to develop yeah. anxiety, depression. So this was really the biggest challenge. And I, I was in a, in a, working for a company and a, and a leadership that uh, thought there was a, an opportunity for us to do something big on it. So I spent the last six years in the company um, working on uh, bringing the global community together around mental health, kind of the way we try to do on HIV. And one of the one of the biggest challenges till today is that the mental health community is very fragmented. There's just not enough funding. Yeah. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, the, the quality of services and the coverage is so is is um, is fairly low, and so you know there's not a lot for people to galvanize around. Um, but we spent the last six years trying to bring people together and, and put our heads together for a better outcome. And I, I think we're making some progress. Yeah. And, and how long were you in that mental health role with J&J? It was about six years, yeah. Okay. So until, I, until I stepped down again the last year. And I'm curious, you know, do you have any advice for maybe some employers that are listening on how they can best provide mental health support for their employees and their organizations? Yeah, one of one of the unexpected outcomes. I mean, we started. I started thinking we would focus externally on, on you know governments and systems, and um, but right away our employees started coming to me by the hundreds and then the thousands, saying, "What about my family?" And you know this was consistent with this notion that I, my family was not uniquely unlucky. This was kind of everywhere. And once you start having a conversation, you find out that almost every family has got has got challenges in mental health. Um, so we. Um, and, and my company was is very good about employee health, mostly on the physical side. Yeah. Um, and so, we were you know we went through this journey, which other companies, to answer your question, can follow as well. Number one, you got to start talking about it, yep. um, just like you do about cancer now. And um, you know, if you break your leg, everybody you know signs right. your cast. It, it, this is just another type of challenge that is yeah. actually easily treatable if you can get people connected to the right kind of care. Mm. Um, but you as a company can, can help make that connection for people. Um, you have to support your employees. Um, um, we do a lot of storytelling um, and, at all levels of the company. Um, and then we, we have a dedicated team. Johnson & Johnson has a dedicated team that wakes up every morning. They had nobody six years ago. Now there's, I think, 20 or 24 people who globally are looking at how do we engage our employees, how do we engage the providers and the payers, um, how do we create awareness so that people don't have to struggle when they're, you know, to struggle to find an answer when they're really having a hard time? They already know where to reach for the answer. So there are a lot of things that people can do, but the first thing, start the conversation, start to address the systemic issues, yeah. and try to normalize it, treat it just like any other yeah. issue. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's so important to try to normalize it, treat it like another issue, like you said. And um, I saw that you were also the global chair for the Alliance for Diverse Abilities Employee Resource Group. Could you tell me some more about that? Yeah, so like I said, employees were coming up to me by the hundreds and then the thousands. And, and so we, um, we, we got together with a, a number of people in the company and, and the head of our uh, DE&I group uh, yep. said, well, why don't we start a, an employee resource group like the ones for LGBTQ or veterans or African-Americans. So we started a, an ERG for, at that point it was 1,500 employees. When I left, it was about 5,000 employees who live with mental illness either as a patient themselves, which is one out of four employees, wow. according to statistics. I mean, it's very common. Yeah. Uh, and then, or as a caregiver like myself, and that's about two out of four employees. It's just about everybody. Um, we later found out it was the first ERG employee resource group of its kind in the world, any, anywhere. 
and then we so we went out to other employers uh, and and helped them set up similar organizations. So now we have a big movement that's uh, both you know our our ERG at Johnson and Johnson was really a driver of a lot of the systemic changes mm -hmm. in the company. First of all, just getting a focus on it and starting to hire a team to look try to figure out what we could do about it, but also telling our stories and then going out to other organizations and enlisting them in the cause. Um, so that, that was an unexpected, uh, really, really, and maybe it was the most most impactful thing that we did was getting the grassroots up in, up in arms, up and speaking their voices and driving the change. And I'll give you two quick examples. Yeah. So I, I went out to Singapore to open our, our, our employee resource group there and I was, you know, I was whining about how in the United States it's hard to get coverage. You know, so yeah. And somebody raised their hand and said, "Well, you know, what do you mean mental health is covered in the United States? Because in Singapore, <laughs> mental health was was uh, not part of the benefit package. Mm. It's, it's you know, in the U.S. Dent, you know, dental care is usually outside the right. Well, in, in Singapore, mental health was outside the whole package. Wow. So we, our company, worked with other companies and the payers to now create. A standard whereby mental health is just part of the whole healthcare insurance package. I mean, that's huge impact. I don't want to discount that. I want to step yeah. stand on that for a moment. I mean, that's a whole country of people that were affected and now potentially have mental health resources available to them. That's well, and Singapore is the regional headquarters for most multinationals for Asia Pacific. So you, right. it had this knock-on effect, but it all started with the employee engagement and activation. That's something I would have even thought of doing. Yeah. A similar thing happened in the U.S. where um, we, when you can get care, it's usually out of network, so you're, you're paying out of pocket for it. It's not covered by insurance. Right. And because of our employees raising this as, the, as the, one of the main issues, we worked very hard to get our, to broaden our network of providers. And so w when we started, we had about 15%, one five percent of mental health was in, it was in network compared to cancer, which was like 99% in network. By the time I left at the end of last year, we were over seven zero percent in network mental health, just by working with the payers and the providers. So that was again driven by the employees saying, "This is my number one challenge. Can you try to help fix it?" Uh, and again, something we wouldn't have thought of right out of the box. Yeah, that's it's really cool to hear, and it sounds like you had tremendous impact on J and J as an organization and on the globe in your time there. Yeah, the, the, well, the last thing about these ERGs is that, you know, we, our, our, our ERGs would go out to universities and high schools and recruit. Mm. So you think about LGBTQ, you go out and say, hey, come work for this company because it's a great company and, you, you know, you can belong here, you can be yourself, you can really contribute. So our mental health ERG started going to universities and, and high schools and, and talking about how if you are the, you know, three out of four people who are living with mental health in your family, um, you don't have to hide it anywhere. You can come here. You you can talk about. It, you get the care you need. You can you can um, uh, also be part of this larger movement that we're building globally around mental health. And so it became a, re a recruiting competitive advantage for the company. Uh, J and J competes against Amazon and Apple and Microsoft, um, all the big you know leading edge companies. Uh, and and so for a at least a little while we had an advantage. Now they're all kind of in the same game. Yeah. And as, as you know, you know, young people are talking more openly about mental health now, so that they don't want to go back in the closet, just like an earlier generation didn't want to go back in the closet on the LGBTQ yeah. issue. And so we uh, created an environment where they could come and be part of the movement. And more importantly, I think we spread that movement globally to other employers. And so yeah. we're, we're seeing a real rising tide. Yeah. 
Now, have we changed the system yet? Uh, not as much. You know, we've made a startup, but we've got a long way to go. If you're enjoying this episode, I would greatly appreciate if you could review, like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platforms. Your engaged support goes a long way in helping the show grow and getting our impactful guests heard. Now back to the show. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really cool, though, that you guys were able to set that example and, like you said, create that rising tide. Certainly a lot of work to do, but one step at a time is how we get there. Yeah. Yeah. And so now uh, you are the co-chair of the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention. Can you tell me about what took you into that role? Well, we were looking for ways to make a systemic change, and um, the National Action Alliance is... Uh, is essentially the U.S. Mental Health Reform Commission. Uh, it's a group that has been around for a number of years and is trying to find ways to change the trajectory of mental health for the yeah. United States. And it, it's, an, it's the A-team around the table. So it's a public, private, government, private sector. On the government side, we have the Surgeon General. We have the White House Special Assistant to the President for Mental Health. Uh, we have the head of the National Institute of Mental Health the head of the CDC, which wow. looks at population health, the head of uh, SAMHSA, which is the mental health agency. We have the Department of Defense because of all their issues with PTSD and suicide, Veterans Affairs, HHS. Um, and then on the private sector side, if you think about it, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to tell you who's important to be around the table because it's not obvious to you, but the first people uh, that interact with somebody with a mental health issue are often the clergy. So we have yeah. the faith community at the table. The second place that, unfortunately, most Americans interact is with law enforcement. So we have mm. the chiefs of police at the table. It's so important. And other first responders, you know, yeah. the EMS and so forth. Uh, we also have Facebook, because social media is both a, 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 a contributor to mental health <laughs> yeah. to young people, but it's also, they've done a lot to bring people together and, and you know, provide sure. information and, and community. Uh, we have health systems like Kaiser, um, uh, we have the, uh, the sport leagues because, you know, yeah. Brian Love and uh, 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 DeMar DeRozan in the, in the NBA, Michael Phelps in swimming, Simone Biles in, in gymnastics. And there's so many people coming out of the network. So the, and they touch young people. They have a platform. They're also trying to take care of their own athletes and staff. So they, they're part of the conversation. It's an amazing group of people. And what we're trying to do, uh, Jeff, is we, we've got a very uh, comprehensive strategy but it's too big. We've got to find one or two dials mm. that we can really all collectively push on. Yeah. And that's what we're going to try to do over the next six months. And I was brought in as co-chair, I believe, because um, on, on, the, on the private sector co-chair, there's a Veterans Administration that was the government co-chair. But I think the group was struggling to find a focus and a, and a, and a way to be efficient and almost more business-like. So yeah. they, they wanted a business person who, who had looked at you know, naughty problems have found two or three ways yeah. to make a difference. And that's the, the journey we're on right now. You've implemented plans for change. So it definitely seems like a great fit. And when you mentioned some of those big names, big organizations, celebrities, athletes that are involved, practically, like, what does that mean in terms of them being involved and being in the conversation? Well, we, the, the group before I got there formulated a national strategy. We're now refreshing that. But it's everything that you would want to do uh, to fix mental health and substance use as, a, as part of that in order to eventually prevent the worst outcome, which is a suicide or a death of despair. Um, so it's everything from, I mean, one thing that stood out about mental health is it, it starts in the young. The, yeah. 
half of it starts by the age of 14 and three quarters by the age of 24. Um, so we need to get into pediatricians' offices who have, usually have little training. We need to be involved in schools where teachers are already overloaded with lots of other responsibilities. We got to work with law enforcement so that kids don't end up in jail rather than in treatment. Oh, yeah. um, and then there's, you know, there's employers. We talked about when people get into the workforce. Uh, there, there's also a fairly big burden among older people who are losing their community, right. to, you know, they, or they're fighting health issues. And so it is a lifelong thing, but there's a big opportunity early in life. And I think that's where. So if you think about the strategy covering all those things. And, and, and also looking at the basic science and the investment that has to go on there that hasn't happened at, at scale yet. It's a, it's a very broad strategy, and everybody around that table is doing important things within the context of that strategy. Yeah. Uh, and, but I think as, as, as a group, as leaders, our opportunity is to find one or two things that will make the biggest difference. And I'll give you two examples of things we've done already. Yeah. One is, have you heard of 988 yet? Yes, I have, so, yep. But you had, the viewers maybe not. Well, so 988 rolled out last summer. Um, it used to be you called 911, the police came to you know, confront you uh, when you're not at your best. Your mental health crisis, yeah. yeah. So that doesn't always end well. 988 is, is, the, is, is the new three-digit number for if you have a mental health crisis. And instead of having law enforcement come, you get a... The, the goal is to have a trained provider to come out to de-escalate and then connect you to, to care. Yeah. Denver's actually a pioneer in this, the mm -hmm. Mental Health Center of Denver, the STAR program, yep. which, which you mentioned on your program before. Yeah. So in Denver, if you call 911, you, you have a good chance of having a team of mental health professionals come instead of the police or with the police. And that has led to, a, a, I think for every dollar spent in that program, Stanford University did a study. They found that it saved 3 to $4 in, in criminal justice and in the health system costs, so people yeah. aren't going to emergency rooms. That's awesome. Um, so that's an example of what this group did in, in the last uh, four years. Um, and so we need to find things like that that are that are yeah. that we, that only this group can do collectively. 988 would not have happened. It was a great idea, but to have all these people pulling on their piece of the pie to push this thing through Congress to get it uh, appropriations through uh, from the federal government, state government, local government, and then to get these people trained up and, and put in the field, uh, it really took that kind of uh, collective focus is so that that's what we're looking for now the, the 988 is, is sort of the crisis response so it's it's at the end of the process it's, it's sort of like waiting for cancer to get to stage four right, versus preventative care so like. we I, you know our goal i think is to try to get upstream yeah and we will decide what that is as a group i don't know what it's going to be but I, I suspect it'll be in this area of youth mental health you know here that in colorado um Last year, for the first time in history, the leading cause of death for adolescents is suicide. It's heartbreaking. And that just shows you how urgent this is and, yeah. and how much we need to lean into this. Yeah, I mean, it, it truly is a, a crisis. I'm, it's so great to hear about all the people putting the work in. Obviously, there's a lot to do. And, you know, specifically, as you mentioned, law enforcement, you know, I'd be remiss not to dig in here a little bit, given my experience in criminal justice reform. Um, you know, there's, in, within our criminal justice system, there are a lot of people that have severe mental health issues that were put in jail, you know, because, often because of that. Um, is there any work that you know of going on to try to bring mental health resources into prisons? Yeah, yeah. let me, let me sort of broaden yeah. this frame a little bit. So the, the three largest mental health facilities in the country are the jails in Chicago, L.A., and New York. Wow. 
And I think, I think in most studies show that the, a majority of people in prison have serious mental illness, yeah. clinical, you know, serious schizophrenia, bipolar, certainly substance use. Um, so unfortunately, we, you know, we've, because we don't have a, a strong mental health system, we let the, the, the prison system take over. So there's, a, there's an initiative called the uh, Stepping Up Initiative that the National Association of Counties has, and, and other stakeholders like Johnson & Johnson, like the National Action Alliance, are working to look at every step of that process that leads someone to be end, end up in jail and try to intercept it, try to divert them. So one, one of the things that the, the, the uh, researchers have found is that most people who get arrested who have mental illness and end up in jail had been in an emergency room in the last three months. Wow. So there was an opportunity to, to get that person connected to care, but more often than not, they were kind of catch and release. And so we, we lost that opportunity and, and it fell to the jails and the law, law enforcement. So we're, we're trying to interrupt that chain or that pipeline for the mental health community. And then, you know, to your point, um, there, there's a, a big problem in the prisons because people are not necessarily getting their medication. Yeah. And then when people are released from prison, um, you know, you, you know better than I do that usually you're given a, a, a $5 bill and a bus ticket or whatever, but no one's given you an appointment with a psychiatrist right. or, or, or a month's supply of pills. So how do we, that's sort of the back end of the, of the yep. pipeline, how do we address that? And, and there are a lot of good people working on it, but as we've said already a couple of times, there's, there's still a long way to go. Yeah, it's... Uh tremendous and important work. I thank you for it. And I also wanted to ask about your role as a senior advisor at Edelman Global Advisory. Well, I, I'm, I'm trying to be as retired as I can be on the, on the, you know, the money-making side, but um, Edelman is, is one of the leading public relations firms in the, in the world, uh, and they work on all kinds of policy issues for both the private and public and nonprofit sectors. They're actually the, um, I, I think this is, well, they're, 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 the, they're the public relations from one of the largest mental health mm. advocacy groups in the country. I'm not sure I can tell you who it is, but it's probably public record. Um, and, and recently, uh, a year ago, uh, Edelman, like a lot of PR firms, decided to branch, uh, to expand its services. They brought in a management consulting policy group, uh, which was uh, led by all of my best friends from my years doing global policy. Right. And they said, hey, we, we, we know this mental health thing is big. Do you want to come on and help us understand that and, and put the resources, not just of Edelman, but Edelman serves almost every company you can think of. Yeah. And every government, every nonprofit, they, they have this amazing network. And we get, get all these people together around a couple of initiatives. And so um, we're starting to ideate around that. Um, and it has the opportunity to be global, but obviously also in the United yeah. States. And how long have you been working with them? Just since, uh, I think it's March, I think. Yeah. Okay, so it's been short term so far. Uh, even It's early, but are there any specific examples of what you guys are doing that you can share? You know, I, I think it's very similar to the, the what we talked about with the National Action Alliance. There's a yeah. lot of things you could do, but what are the if, if you got a lot of the leading employers together, what are the two or three yeah. things you can do? I know for a lot of... The, of, of employers and, and clients for firms like Edelman. Uh, there's a burning platform, which is their own workforce. Right. They're seeing, especially post-pandemic, just huge rates of burnout. They're starting to become aware of the substance use and depression, anxiety, uh, you know, and rising suicide rates. So the, and, and they're also seeing, as I, as I mentioned, young people coming out of, out of the 
into the workforce who are, are really advocates around mental health. So you have, a, you have a, let's say you have an older senior leadership team and all these young people are coming and saying, well, we want mental health care. Well, yeah. You know, what does that look like? How do we help our older employees? How do we help our younger employees? So for a lot of these clients, I, I think the, you know, maybe the big opportunity is to do the workplace mental health piece. And then maybe if we, if we got to do two bites of the apple, we would collectively come together in some kind of public campaign that would lead to systemic changes, maybe around kids or maybe around yeah. young adults. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, it's great to hear that that's going on. And you know, we don't have tons of time left, and I still want to get to my big questions. But before we do, I just wanted to bring up you know, that your son Peter's involved in, in mental health, and I wanted to get an understanding of you know, how your work in mental health has changed your relationship. And I know we've talked about potentially having him on with you for a follow-up in the future. So let me just give you a little teaser about Peter, and, and you, you should really explore with him because he's, he's a much better spokesperson on this whole issue than I am. Peter uh, won the NCAA soccer championship, uh, Division Three, with Tufts. He, he scored a goal in the final. He was on the all-tournament team. Awesome. And a month later, he was in jail. Wow. And it was all related to mental health. Uh, and, and Michael Phelps talks about this. this uh, when you reach the pinnacle of your athletic career, and you, you've always imagined that you're going to suddenly feel better. Yeah. And Michael Phelps, you, you, you might know his story. He, he went home after the London Olympics when he had become the winningest Olympian of all time. And he locked himself in his apartment for five days and thought about ending his life because he wow. thought, I'm never going to feel better than I did at London. I still feel really depressed, which he had been his whole life. But at sports, it kind of kept it at bay. And a lot of athletes have this, uh, it's called the Olympic blues. Uh, mm -hmm. when they, uh, and my son had the same thing. So uh, it's, a, it's an interesting story. Uh, so it's criminal justice, it's mental health, it's sports, yeah. all the things that you kind of that define who you are in a lot of ways. So I, I encourage you to, to get them on the show. And Yeah. Yeah, no, I would, I would love to have them. And it's thinking about the athletes like that is really interesting because I think it applies in a lot of other areas as well. You know, myself, one of my areas of interest is film production. And I think about sort of that high when you're coming off a long time on set yeah. and you're being with, you're with all your friends and your coworkers and it's this big rush and then all of a sudden it's gone, you know, the day shooting ends. And um, I think there's a lot of examples like that in a variety of industries. Yeah, and you, I th you mentioned something there. Is you have all your friends in your community, and, and some of that falls away after yeah. your career's done or your movie's done. And, you know, I, I think people know that the, one of the best things you can do for yourself is stay socially connected. Yeah. It's hard to do when you're feeling down and you're kind of yeah. on a downward trajectory, but... The best thing, one of the best things to pull the ripcord and get the little lift for yourself is to force yourself to be around friends and just connect. Yeah. Well, I look forward to discussing that uh, yeah. with Peter. And, um, you know, I'm curious, is there a story in your life where you really just saw how much your work was affecting change and it really hit you? Well, I, I, I've been fortunate throughout my career, starting with human rights uh, and, and, and then going into public policy and law and and, and healthcare, you know, almost everything I did, I had this wonderful mixture of, uh, of having a good career and also having an impact that was positive for people. Um, on this mental health journey, I, I, there, were, there, was one, there were a couple of moments where I just realized that I had bitten off something that was way bigger than I knew. So we had this, uh, within Johnson & Johnson, a TEDx J&J event every year. And I, I, I asked the folks if I could come and talk about my, my new initiative on mental health. And it, it was, we had some rehearsals. 
Um, now, the actual event itself was amazing. That's where all these thousands of people came out. But the first time I knew that I was out of something really big was we had a rehearsal. And there were six uh, coaches who were listening to you, you know, try to put your talk together. It was very rough at that point. And they had the big lights on, so you couldn't really see. Yeah, if you've been on a stage speaking, you can't see a goddamn thing. Right. <laughs> so I did my stumble through my first draft of this thing, and I, and I walked down underneath the lights, and I came up to these six coaches, and it, they were all crying. And they told me, they, they all started telling me, you know, this is so important to me. And that's when I realized, oh, my God, this is not just about my family. It's not about even the policy issues, which are kind of dry. This is really touching people at a gut level, and it just took off from there. Yeah, yeah. Which is why it's easy for me now that I'm, you know, sort of semi-retired, is to say this is my mission now, is to continue yeah. down this path because the need is great. I just have, the, I just have the yeah. a, a, a network and a, you know, a knowledge base and a skill set where I can maybe make a difference. Yeah. And you just get the, the impact is just huge. And I think like the mission that you've dedicated yourself to in this point in your life is a good example of like a way to deal with things after retirement. We talked about, you know, athletes specifically when they retire, life is so different. And so many of them are looking for ways, you know, and missions and things that they need to do or ways to stay engaged. So I think yours is a great example of, of how you're doing that. Well, I'm still, I'm still grappling with going from 120% to, you know, 20%. Right. <laughs> it is a, it is an abrupt slowdown. Yep. Um, but my, my wife and I are um, finding ways to um, you know, have meaningful purpose, and also just enjoy life yeah. more. Yeah, I'm glad glad to hear it, that. It doesn't hurt that we we will have our sixth grandchild in, oh, a, wow. in two months, um, and we have great we have five kids uh, across the country. So, and, and you know, my parents are still alive, and, and siblings, and so we, oh. we have a lot of family. And, and then there's hockey, hockey friends. Yep. I mean, the, that's a that's a great community that you built. I'm just lucky to be part of that here. In, I appreciate in, it. Yeah, it's. Uh, Thank you for sharing that. Congrats on, on all the grandkids. That's amazing. And uh, if you'd like, at this point, you can ask me a question. Well, I, 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 you, you can decline to answer, but you, you indicated earlier that you had some mental health experience in your family. And part of what we're trying to do is, is normalize the conversation. Yeah. I always caution people that, you know, you shouldn't talk about something you're not comfortable about because um, there are still a lot of, you know, frankly, uh, negative views about mental health. But if you want to participate in the movement, this might be a chance to say a little bit about yeah. what your experience has been. I mean, I'm wide open generally. I, I think it's important to talk about. And, you know, I mentioned growing up in the South and how it wasn't really much of a conversation. But, yeah, I've dealt with anxiety as long as I can remember, um, you know, at a variety of different levels. And especially when my dad passed away when I was 20, like it was just a lot to deal with. I've been in therapy since then and it's been incredibly helpful for me. And so I'm on a constant journey of trying to work on myself and improve my mental health and certainly struggle at times. You know, there's other, other members of my family that have dealt with some mental health issues. And, um, for me, it's a daily thing that I think about and try to be conscious and aware of, um, because it's going to affect everything that I do. And it's also now as a parent, it's going to affect the way that I parent. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have a three-year-old and eight-month-old, and it's certainly on my mind, like, what am I doing that's going to affect their mental health in the future? Clearly, you know, growing up and my parents and my, you know, for good and bad affected my mental health. So I try to be really aware of it. And you talked about exercise and, and the community yeah. is one thing. What are there three or four other things that you do when you feel like you're yeah, I mean, certainly playing hockey is a big one and, and having that community, I would say, 
you know, for me, a good sort of relaxation escape is, is watching film content and, you know, sort of digging in. I like deep stories about rich characters and um, it kind of gives me a different perspective uh, of someone else, you know, in these things that are written really nicely. So that's part of it. And also just stay in close touch with my family and, um, and my friends and just uh, trying to be as open as I can with people. Yeah, that's yeah. great. And the other thing is very important for a parent of young kids is sleep. Yes. Uh, you, it's, you're going to be at a deficit for a while, but... It's tough to come uh, by. We talked about social connection, exercise. Sleep is hugely critical. Yeah. And then the other one is, uh, is nutrition. So yeah. that means, you know, moderating alcohol use, but also yeah. eating healthy food, not all the junk food that's out there. Yeah. Because that, inform, that feeds your body, and it also, your body affects your brain. So yeah. it's all connected. Yeah, I mean, my relationship with food, we could probably do a whole podcast on. Uh, it's, yeah. <laughs> you know, n- nutrition's been up and down for me. It's something I, I struggle with. It's a big part of my mental health, but uh, I certainly agree. And sleep for me is hard to come by for me and my wife right now, but uh, we're working on it. It's certainly a really important part of, of making it through everyday life and important for people to acknowledge that. And, you know, another thing that I, I'd be remiss not to mention is that cannabis is a big part of helping my mental health. Um, you know, I'm a big drug policy advocate, but I'm also a big cannabis consumer. Um, and I've found over many years of sort of trial and error, found the products that work for me. Um, and it's different for everybody. And so there's, you know, there's certain strains that I use to relax, certain ones that help me focus, certain ones that help me be creative. And uh, it's certainly been a help uh, in reducing my anxiety in a lot of circumstances. Yeah, and you mentioned therapy. So I, I, would, I would say... Uh medicinal products let's say that includes some pharma pharmaceuticals yeah. or, um, not they don't work for everybody yeah it's a trial and error and kind of calibration yep but you you sound like you found a good mix and i, I appreciate your being open and sharing because that's how we make a difference yeah no absolutely and um, i'm going to skip a little bit here down to our big question at the end just given our time crunch here so you know the question that i ask every guest if you could snap your fingers and fix one thing in the world what would it be and how do you think that change would reverberate well apart from u.s china relations which we talked about yeah. no but for me it's mental health I, I i want people to treat mental health just like any other health issue i want us to, to especially for young people get to it early before it becomes stage four like um, and I, I think the outcome is going to be uh, fewer deaths of despair, suicide, alcohol overdose, opiate overdose, and people leading and thriving, uh, you know, more meaningful lives. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible to think what just a shift in global mindset around mental health could do for the health of our entire world. And there's so many countries that are even further behind than us. And it's, it's really sad to think about. So, yeah, I mean, if we can be in a world where that's the case, I think we'll unlock a lot of potential in people. I think the same way that people are bogged down by trying to survive every day that don't have the resources they need, and that's what comes up in this question a lot, mental health is doing the same thing. It's, it's closing off potential of so many people because they're not getting the care and support that they need. Um, so I really appreciate your work to get us closer to that future. Yeah, you know, as you point out, even if you don't have access to medical care or medicinal support, there are these basic things you can do. Try to get sleep, try to eat yeah. well, try to get some physical activity. It doesn't have to be high cardio stuff that we do on Friday morning <laughs> at ice hockey. Um, and, and then just try to keep your social connection because people tend to retreat. Yeah. Um, there are things you can do without any expenditure of money that are available to everybody globally if they're aware of it. That's yeah. the kind of awareness you're trying to spread. Yeah, well... 
know, I've really enjoyed this discussion, and I'm sure that it's it's kind of making some people think that are listening. How can people generally support you, your impact, your work? Right. I think, first of all, uh, if you see somebody who's struggling, ask them how they're doing it. Not just as a passing thing, but you know, how are you really doing it? How can I help? Yeah. Um, you can take a thing called mental health first aid, just like CPR mm. training. It's available globally. Um, uh, we'll make sure to link something about that. Yeah, if, if you just Google mental health first aid, and then it'll ask you to put your zip code or country in, and it'll tell you when the next sessions are. Usually, usually free or, you know, twenty bucks or something. But that will make you a, 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 give you the skills to help your loved ones, and if you know even uh, people you see on the street or in work, you'll know how to interact with them and how to and what to, you know, how to refer them to care, just like you would do with the CPR. Yeah. You're not the doctor. You're not the heart surgeon. Stabilize, refer, right. connect. And now you create somewhat educated citizens that can then go and spread the message and suggest others to go into this. So you create messengers for this important work. Yeah, and then if you want to get involved in the bigger picture, you can join NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness. That's a, the leading advocacy group. If you're on the scientific side, you can um, work with the National Institute of Mental Health in the United States. And then on the system side, um, there are a lot of groups working to try to improve uh, healthcare here in Colorado. The Mental Health Center of Denver is one important place, uh, but nationally there are other groups. Um, so there are lots of ways to get involved. And then finally, if you're in a workplace, you can get involved in your workplace mental health. Yeah. Well, you know, thank you so much for being here and to you know remind the audience we're here live at the Podcast Movement Conference in Denver. Uh, and uh, it's been, we were provided this space for free uh, by Yap Media and GoBox Studio. So uh, we're really appreciative of that. This was a, a cool opportunity for me to do the show in a little bit of a different way. And want to thank Craig so much for coming out here, doing this. Thank you so much for your work. I'm really excited to continue our conversation, continue playing hockey together, and uh, hopefully spread the word on mental health and uh, helping to alleviate the stigma. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Appreciate all you do. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Are the Answer. If you enjoyed the episode, share it with friends, and reviews or subscriptions on your favorite platforms go a long way to help the show grow. I want to share these incredible people and their remarkable work with as many others as possible. Thanks for your support. For more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com.